Hi, we're Monique and Ali, and welcome to the Together Apart podcast. We are two mothers who are both currently successfully co-parenting and wanted to create the resource that we wish we'd had when we'd started on our journeys of parenting after separation. We want to make it very clear that we are not trained therapists and are sharing our lived experiences. Some of the concepts we speak of aren't relevant in situations where safety is an issue. Welcome to this episode of Parenting Together Apart. I'm sitting here with Mon. Um, I just wanted to quickly touch on the fact that we have gone to fortnightly episodes instead of weekly. It was just a little bit too much pressure and fortnightly seems to work better with both of us doing this on the side of everything else going on in our lives. And this week we have a very exciting guest talking. Um, Seraphine Upton is talking about narcissism. We get a lot of messages about parenting with a narcissist or co-parenting with a narcissist, um, how to handle it, how can you do it. Um, One of the things, I don't know whether this is necessarily just with narcissists, but I get is what do you do when they're just trying to hurt you through the children and they're not even really trying to co-parent. So I think I'm really excited to, to hear it. I haven't listened to it yet. Mon did this by herself. So yeah. Yeah, and we felt like it was really important for us to have somebody who was a professional and really well-versed in narcissism to come on and talk about this topic. And we felt like it was important for people to identify when they were in a relationship, whether that's a friendship or a co-parenting relationship, or even if your own parent potentially is one and you're trying to figure out how to navigate that, we felt like it was important to uh, have the resources and the strategies to be able to identify if that's you and what to do next more so than to label somebody um or as seraphin says in the episode to uh, other them so without further ado i'll do a little introduction of seraphin so seraphin upton has worked in new zealand and australia as a family and couples therapist for 20 years And before becoming a sex and relationship therapist, Seraphin worked primarily in child mental health. On top of her extensive experience and qualifications, she also has trained under world-renowned relationship therapists Estia Peral and Terry Real, the only New Zealand-based therapists to have completed their training. So Seraphin specializes in recovering from narcissistic relationships, parenting through separation, addiction, and ADHD. And here she is. We hope you enjoy the episode. Seraphine, it's so amazing to be talking to you today. I am so excited to talk about this topic, narcissism, because I think it's a really important topic. Uh, you're a New Zealand-based therapist, and when I was having a little stalky stalk on your website, I saw that you had trained under Esther Perel, which immediately piqued my interest because I love her. I'm across, I've read her books, uh, Mating in Captivity, and I think the other one's called State of Affairs, which I think anybody should read if they've been cheated on or even if they've cheated because it's really uh, helps you have a good understanding of infidelity and of course her podcast uh, is amazing which is where should we begin which is her obviously lifetime coaching uh, couples on issues and stuff that they're having so how did you even get into how did you discover her how did you even get into uh, being trained with her I'm so impressed that you have read all of her books and are across her whole uh all of her works. So it was in 2016 
um, and I uh, a relationship that I'd been in ended and I thought this is ridiculous I'm a relationship therapist and my relationship just ended and I I don't really know why uh, so it was really like enough is enough like if I am out here trying to help other people uh, with their relationships then I need to walk the talk and figure out like why did my relationship end because I you know like most people I my relationship ended and I didn't really have a sense of of why uh, it just I got an email one day about um through you know how you sign up to newsletters and I got a newsletter about some training that was being run by Terry Real and SFRL and I signed on it was like and it was just totally life-changing I just cannot believe that we don't get any education in primary school or preschool or high school about how to have relationships. Do we get trained to like communication and like safe dating and how to, you know, cope with bullying and there's mental health awareness, but there's no kind of uh, relational training, like how to have better relationships. What is a relationship? How do you know when you're in one? How do you know when, what, you know, how do you know you're being relational? How do you know when you're not being relational? It's so interesting that you talk about that with school because Ali and I both say that when we were first separating and transitioning into a co-parenting relationship that communication was one of the first things that we had to learn. And I think it's so funny because just because you can talk doesn't mean that you can communicate because talking and communicating are not the same thing and communication really is a skill. And Oh my fucking God, my life would have been so much easier if I just learned. Do you know what? Like, I totally agree with you. And it's so funny. It's so interesting that you say that because so many couples I work with, they come in and they're incredibly intelligent, like, like super, like super intelligent and like emotionally intelligent as well, like an intelligent in every way. And they're like, we talk about our feelings and my goodness, they do. They can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And do you know what I say to them? I'm like, you guys need to stop talking to each other. Seriously, I put them on the, what I call like an in-house three months for Pashna retreat. Okay, I've just fallen in love with you a little bit more because I love the idea of a Pashna. I'm a meditator myself. Okay. Seriously, I, like, I put couples on a Pashna retreat like in their own home. Like just shut up, stop mm. talking. It's not helping because talking is not the same as communicating. Just because you're, just because you're woke and you're talking about your feelings does not mean you're communicating. Oh, I love you so much. It's so funny. <laughs> this, this topic has actually come up quite a bit because my meditation teacher, she did a seven-day challenge uh, last week, actually. And one of the practices for the day was anytime you feel like talking, just stop talking. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is a really great practice. So it was more about learning how to listen and, and learning how to basically just you know, shut up and experience what's going on in the moment and, and how understand that and then talk, you know, talking being an intentional uh, thing rather than just a default blah, 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 kind of a experience. I was one, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, which we already know that our topic today is narcissism, but uh, your website specifically says that one of the things that you specialize is, um, helping people to heal from a from narcissistic abuse. But I was wondering where that interest for you came about uh, as one of your areas of expertise. Yeah, great question. Um, so um, sadly, my, and sadly or not sadly, my interest in narcissism has come about through um, being in, in narcissistic relationships myself. Yeah, and getting really, really burned. 
narcissism is so incredibly complex and it's so traumatic for both parties in that in that relationship whether it's like a relationship between a mother and a child and the mother is has narcissism or it's a you know like relationship between two cousins or a, um, a you know two lovers it, it makes no difference you know when there's uh, relational abuse emotional abuse um, narcissistic abuse occurring in a relationship it's incredibly traumatic for both both parties we speak to so many parents both through our platforms and, and our personal lives who are navigating relationships with narcissists and often it is used more as an insult than a diagnosis so the feeling i get from somebody is that someone who is narcissistic is always abusive has an inflated sense of self-importance is evil manipulative I was just wondering if you could share how, well, what the difference between being a narcissist is or having versus having narcissistic traits and how you, how one might identify that they're in a relationship with one. Yeah. Okay. So there's a few questions in there. So can I just ask you to please bring me back if I go off track, because there was, there's, there's several points in there. And thank you so much for asking these questions. They're so important to ask because at the moment, out there in the world, in the media, uh, like social media, mainstream media, whatever, um, and also um, main, mainstream kind of dialogue or discourse is around, um, you know, if you call somebody a narcissist, it's kind of as a, it's like a negative thing, it's a put down, um, it's a bad thing. Like, you're like when you say narcissist, you mean you're, you're saying someone is, um, I don't know, an asshole, right? Or self-absorbed or yeah. entitled. So. First of all, I don't say, and I don't, I wouldn't call somebody a narcissist. Okay. And there's a couple of reasons why I would never call somebody a narcissist. And that's because when we talk about somebody as being a something, like when we say somebody is a, a, a perpetrator or an abuser or a, an alcoholic or a, what else could we say? A, a, a bully or a narcissist. When we do that, we, move ourselves into a position of othering when we say somebody is something it, it means that we are like saying that they're different from us mm. whereas we're all 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 of us are capable of being narcissist narcissistic all of us but somebody who's a narcissist you know and i say that with quotation marks somebody who's mm -hmm. a narcissist has just had the volume turned up too high on that part of themselves and it needs to be turned down a little bit lower, but it doesn't mean that anybody else doesn't have it. You know, do you know what I mean by like othering, the process of othering? Yeah, I do. But if you could explain to people what that might look like, that would be great. Sure, thank you. So there's this great quote, and I can't remember who said it, but it's something like, be very wary of people who tell you who you are. No one has the right to tell us who we are. Only we can say who we are. So when I say, to, if I was to say to somebody, you're a narcissist or he's a narcissist or she's a narcissist, what I'm doing is I'm indulging in a patriarchal kind of top-down power dynamic whereby I am thinking that I'm so, I'm acting in such an entitled way that I get to tell somebody who they are or what they are. And, and that is not relational. So if, if I guess, and to put this into context, instead of saying you're a narcissist, it would probably be more relational if I said something like, what you're saying right now, it really hurts and I need you to please stop. 
just because somebody's behavior is narcissistic doesn't mean that we should tell them that. Because by telling them that, if we say you're a narcissist or, um, yeah, as soon as we say you are, then we've lost that person. So even if you're co-parenting with, in quotation marks, a narcissist, telling them that is not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to make life easier for yourself. You're already in a, in a pickle because you're co-parenting with a, in quotation marks, narcissist or somebody who is unable to demonstrate empathy or compassion, right? So life is already tricky for you. Um, <clears throat> telling, communicating to somebody that they're a narcissist is just going to make life more difficult for you as, as a parent. There's three kinds of narcissism, three types of narcissistic kind of frameworks, I guess, or um, ways of being in the world that is, that's helpful for people to know about. The first is what is called overt narcissism. And overt narcissism is the person in the space who's really loud, who's really entitled, who's potentially arrogant, self-absorbed, um, doesn't listen to other people's views. They're, they're grandiose, they're entitled. They are, you know, like everybody knows when they're in the room. You know, like if, if, if we had to like think about somebody who's an overt narcissist, we would say Donald Trump. Yeah. Like everyone knows he's a, he's a narcissist. He knows he's a narcissist. It's all out there, right? Does a narcissist know they're a narcissist? Um, some do. Yeah. Some do. Not, not all, but some. And the other thing that I, I want to say is really important to note is that narcissism is a, it's a way of thinking and feeling and being in the world, but it comes as part of other personality issues. And then the other form of narcissism is overt, uh, sorry, covert narcissism. And covert narcissism is, uh, it's on the down low. So they're the kids who got picked on, who got shamed, who got bullied, who they made to be outsiders. And they start, you know, I don't know, playing violent video games and they're sitting alone in their room a lot. They don't have any friends, they're super isolated. They, they you know, they're, they're usually, if not always male. And so all this anger and rage just gets internalized, mm. right? And they're the quiet kid. They're not the Donald Trump kid in the class asking for all the attention. They're the quiet kid who's sitting in a lot of shame. Um, and so all of their arrogance is turned inwards. And they, they think things like, I'm special, I'm different. Nobody understands me. But the, the other form of narcissism, I don't know if you remember that I said, there's like three kind of, behavioral or relational frameworks and us in the third kind of somebody who has both uh, entitled and grandiose behaviors mm -hmm. and they also have uh, shame-based behaviors yeah. so they turn rage against other people or they turn like um, arrogance towards other people and they also turn it towards themselves so how would you identify those uh, in your co-parents so would what kind of behaviors might they demonst be demonstrating or what kind of experiences might you be having with them that would identify that potentially they have narcissistic traits or a narcissist and in terms of like with co-parenting how you might notice is like somebody who's a parent a parent who's like overtly narcissistic they're the parent who is very they kind of brag about their kids or they brag about their parenting or they brag about knowing what's best for the child. Um, and it's kind of like my way or the highway. 
and they are sort of like they're a tyrant they block things they they're aggressive they're intimidating and it's all about them and everything's about how how it's going to make them look they're the kind of parent that if you say to your friends or family look like, like he's he or, he or she's a narcissist everyone's like yeah we know okay this is all out there because they're a tyrant they're they're they're, bull, they're they can be bullying and they can be controlling are they relentless as well relentless in what way you know just relentless in their ongoing behavior to need to like doing whatever it takes to always have people look favorably at them I suppose yeah I think um it's important to note that just because somebody is overtly or covertly or both like like just because somebody is an overt narcissist or a covert narcissist Mm. it doesn't mean that they're abusive and controlling yeah so I think it's really important to distinguish that yeah just because somebody is because somebody is high on the narcissism scale doesn't make them abusive and controlling I read a book by I think his name's Dr Mark Edinson and I think the book is called Unmasking Narcissism oh yeah I've heard of it yeah yeah he takes a much more compassionate approach to NPD and he speaks about how it's a deeply misunderstood mental health issue um do you see any problems or uh, challenges with condemning narcissism yeah like I talked about before it's it's uh I don't agree with condemning narcissism because if we do that then we're then we're doing othering yeah and I like we're we're putting people in a box and pathologizing narcissism and but um in most cases narcissism is the result of pretty significant childhood trauma Mm. um and so to um you know accuse or blame or um kind of minimize a person who's narcissistic to minimize their behavior because and say it's just because he or she is a narcissist I think that obscures the reality of like how they came to be that way and how they came to be that way is because they're they're super traumatized but I don't know like there's it's difficult because like yes yes you should be we should all be compassionate and empathic and kind absolutely but should we put up with emotional psychological abuse no yeah no (laughs) these are two different things like should we accept narcissism and be compassionate for it towards it yeah absolutely should we accept being abused no yeah 100 percent agree what do you think then are the most common misconceptions about people with narcissism is it um is it that it is the root cause of it is trauma and people don't really look to that? Yeah, it's like um it's like, you know, one of the things that I that annoys me is that is uh, I think probably in our judicial system and uh forensics or you know, if somebody's if somebody's intimidating or violent, they're told to go on and like uh, on an anger management course um and they get skills and you know like calming I assume that they get skills and calming down mm. but they don't get skills in understanding like you know like why do they behave this way mm. um or skills about how to be more relational and how to be more compassionate towards themselves 
I heard this, um, I listened to this podcast the other day actually with Oprah and uh, I want to say Dr. Perry or something like that um, on the Brene Brown podcast. She was talking about her school that she opened for in South Africa for girls. And she said that she was saying a lot, you know, why aren't they this? Why aren't they that? Why aren't they grateful? Why aren't they happier? Why aren't they healing? Why aren't they, uh, you know, doing all these things? She said, I realized that I was asking the wrong question. It's not why are they like that? It's what happened to them for them to be like that. And it was just such a small shift in uh, perspective, I suppose, but so powerful as well. I really liked that. And I think that kind of mirrors what you're saying there. And the whole podcast was on trauma and resilience. Um, and it was, it was a really interesting conversation, really interesting turn of phrase. Um, okay, well, let's get into narcissism and co-parenting. And why do you think co-parenting with a narcissist? Let's just, every time we say narcissist, there's inverted quotes over the word. But <laughs> when, why is co-parenting with a narcissist so hard or so challenging? Um, because they don't want anything narcissists have no they have no goal their only goal is to avoid shame and to have control over other people narcissists are uh yeah that they, they are their whole purpose their sole purpose in life is to avoid shame so basically to be in the body of a narcissist is about like potential is, is they just their own um survival mode and when you like to be a parent requires being flexible, being agile, being creative, being um, patient, um, being, being strategic, being kind, compassionate, empathic, having good boundaries, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's the most nuanced thing we do, right? And when you're a narcissist, you can't do any of that because you're, all you're concerned about is how to avoid shame. So when we are trying to avoid shame and we're just trying to survive, we're not in a very creative space. And being a parent is all about being creative. So then if the narcissist's sole purpose is to avoid shame and control other people, then how as a co-parent or even anyone in a relationship, some form of relationship with a narcissist, how do they deal with that? What, what, what can they be doing? Like if you can't control the other person, if you can't manage a narcissist's experience of life, then what can you be doing? What tips and strategies can you be employing, I suppose, to help you have a more harmonious experience? I'm not saying it's going to be ideal, but just a much more harmonious experience with someone who is narcissistic. I think techniques and strategies and tactics for managing a narcissist when you're co-parenting with one is like an entire like podcast series in itself. But what I can say is um, what I've noticed my clients do and also what I've noticed myself do is that when we're in, we, we, because we're human beings, we do this really elegant thing of, of mirroring, mir mirroring. And so what that means is like, because the narcissist is so intent on maintaining power and control at all times, either power and control over others or power and control over themselves. Like they're so consumed with power because to have power means you avoid going near shame. And what happens is we respond to that by acting in kind. And what I mean by that is the more the narcissist controls, the more controlling we become. And that is really detrimental to our 
our abilities, our parenting, our other relationships with people who love us and who we love, it gets very, it becomes all consuming. And so that, that's probably my biggest piece of advice is, um, tr is just notice, notice yourself, notice how you respond to that, to the narcissist's behaviors and try and see if you can not, not uh, mirror them. Just like, so the more controlling the narcissist becomes, the more controlling we become because we're trying to anticipate, we're trying to basically avoid, like they're avoiding shame. And so, and we know that they don't want to go any shame. So we try and start controlling situations, engineering situations so that they don't feel uncomfortable. And what I would say to that is like, just stop, just stop. You cannot prevent a narcissist from having their narcissist meltdowns. It's, you can't prevent it. So stop trying. With communication with a narcissist, I've heard people say that emailing and written communication is better than verbal because it gives the other person time to process what's being said rather than knee-jerk reactions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, there's a thing called My Family Wizard, which is a software system for communicating with, um, with the other parent. And that can be good because it uh, everything gets recorded. So like a lot of narcissists have very bad memories. <laughs> they just can't remember the bad things they've said and done um, to other people. So um, writing stuff down and written communication is good because it, yeah, it allows them time to process. And it also allows us time to um, make sure that what we're saying is not emotive because narcissists don't, don't, they don't like feelings. So one technique with narcissists is not to talk about feelings because that's a trigger for them. So if you say, uh, you're making me feel scared or you're making me feel angry, that triggers shame in the, the, the co-parent. So immediately they're going to, their survival instincts are already out there, immediately going to defend themselves against having to feel that shame that they've potentially hurt somebody that is important in their life or pivotal in their life, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Bang on. And it also works the other way. So usually people aren't saying you make me feel or you're, you're doing this to me. Usually people don't do that, uh, especially women don't do that. It's usually like um, people are far more emotionally intelligent and they say, sort of say stuff like, I'm feeling like you're not really hearing me. I feel really uncomfortable. I'm feeling scared or I, I feel really vulnerable. Like, you know, I'm talking from the eye here. They are still going to experience that as shame inducing. Even if you're talking about your own experience and your own feelings, they're still going to go into shame. If you were meeting with a client who's co-parenting with a narcissist, what's one thing you would really want them to know about how to deal with the narcissist? How to deal with that other person? Yeah, so so the number one tip is don't don't try and um, like don't walk around on eggshells. Don't try and stop the narcissist from going into a shame, going into shame. Don't try and stop the narcissist from having a narcissistic meltdown or a narcissistic rage attack or um, a spin out. You know, don't stop trying to control the narcissist. Just like give up. Um, put your guns down because you're never going to get anywhere and it's like it's so exhausting to always trying to try and be one step ahead of like not 
leaving the narcissist, not upsetting the narcissist. Like that's what people do is they spend their whole lives trying not to upset the narcissist. And so that's the first rule of fight club is put you put you put your guns down. Second of all, yeah, written communication all the way. Third rule is always have allies. So with with people no people who are narcissistic, you're co-parenting with a narcissist, I say always get work from behind. And what I mean by that is use the allies of people who um, friends, family, neighbors, whatever, to put the pressure on the narcissist rather than you putting the pressure on the narcissist. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, so um, I had a client the other day um, who uh, she has a good relationship with her ex-partner's mother you know the grandmother of the kids and so she was able to talk to the grandmother about what she needed from her co-parent and then the grandmother put the kind of put the pressure on the narcissist so that it wasn't coming from the co the other parent yeah so it's quite a nice subtle nuanced way of getting what you need without having to fight and go into battle for it why would that person uh, be more receptive to feedback from an ally than they would from the person who's directly involved? Because that person doesn't trigger them into shame. Yeah. Do you then believe that? Uh, actually, hang on. No, let me backtrack a little bit because I want to ask, is it possible to have boundaries with with um, someone who's a narcissist and what might that, what might putting up those boundaries look like and why might that be important that's two questions <laughs> sorry yeah no it's a great question and yes you should have boundaries you should really know what they are but guess what don't tell the narcissist about your boundaries they're for you they're about what you will and won't tolerate they're about what you need you don't need to tell the narcissist one because they don't care and two all they're going to try and do is push push the boundaries over. And so what might good, solid boundaries, loving boundaries look like for a co-parent who's in that position? So I, I hope this is helpful. But like, so for example, I worked with a family the other day and um, there's two children involved and the, um, the main, the primary caregiver of the child children uh, is constantly bombarded by with text messages from the narcissistic parent and when the phone beeps the whole family system gets re-traumatized their whole bodies become rigid they become really anxious and they're like they go to check the phone of like what is it now what is the narcissist going to say now and so my advice is like you need to stop that happening. Like it's just not working because you've got this whole the whole family system into this state of fight flight response, right? And so they're like, so their response to that was like, oh, we just need we need to tell the narcissist that she can't message us anymore and she needs to stop. And that, like we had put a boundary in place. And I would say that's a, that's an example. It's a perfect example of how not to do it. You never tell the narcissist not to text you not to contact you, never ever do that because that's setting a boundary that they then know about and they'll rail against it. Do you do things like um, change your phone number? 
or use a different messaging platform, you know, like My Family Wizard, or you get communication to go through the lawyers or through a family member. So you're always working from behind. You set your boundaries from behind. You don't get out in front and say to the narcissist, you can't text me anymore. You're breaking my boundaries. Or you can only text me before six o'clock at night. So the boundaries are for you. And you keep them private so that the narcissist basically doesn't sniff them out and use them against you or trigger them into, you know, uh, 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 what did you call it? A narcissistic rage meltdown meltdown perfect bingo got it yeah and then I suppose from there then do you believe that a person can peacefully coexist with an with a narcissist and especially in a co-parenting situation do you think that that's possible or do you think that's something that's always going to be managed no if you no, if you're dealing with a narcissist it's always going to be something that you have to manage until those until the kids turn 18 and, and uh, you know, like you say, is living peacefully, co-parenting peacefully with a narcissist possible? I say no, because narcissists don't experience inner peace. You can only reach a peaceful relationship with somebody who is, can reach inner peace themselves. So until a narcissist reaches inner peace, which is a lifelong project for them, and for some it will be possible, for others it won't be, you can't have a peaceful relationship with them because it always starts with ourselves. I imagine that would be exhausting for, for people who feel like they're stuck, I suppose, in that um, experience. What's some things that they can do to help, I suppose, regulate themselves, resource themselves, care for themselves? So it's a marathon, not a sprint, obviously. <laughs> well, I think like one of the things that's occurred to me that we've been talking a lot about the adults and the parents and we haven't really talked about the kids. Um, I think probably the biggest thing to do is the, the most helpful thing to do is just to focus on the, the children and make sure that they're experiencing peace and joy and happiness and safety and security and love and nurturing. You know, as parents, we tend to be okay as long as our kids are okay. But unfortunately, when you have a narcissistic parent, sometimes the kids get impacted by that narcissistic parent's behavior. You know, like one of the things parent, parent, narcissistic parents can do is parental alienation whereby they talk to the child or children about the other parent. Because narcissists, they are completely unable to fathom that another person can um, love two people. So they don't understand that the child can love them and the other parent they think that love is like limited binary I can relate to this experience a lot actually okay I said I haven't had it I don't have narcissistic you know relationships in terms of love or friendships but my mom is diagnosed BPD um and borderline personality disorder yeah uh, and growing up with that was really hard. And I've spoken on the podcast before about parental alienation, uh, my mum from my dad. And I thought that was more of a BPD trait. Maybe it is, but I just resonate deeply with what you're saying. My mum, any any affection or even like talking, even picking up the phone to answer my dad's call was basically an attack on her stability as a, as a mother. Mm-hmm. And it was... With my brothers, they probably had better boundaries, but I was the fixer in my family. And so I would 
you know, I was just doing anything to have to avoid basically her setting off. And even when you're talking about the text messages before, that was also my mom. She would send these tirades, text messages, like paragraphs and like emails and text messages, which was when I was 16. I mean, that was a lot. It was 20 cents a text back then. <laughs> With limited <laughs> things. Like, you know, this is like $20 credit on, on text. You know? So I relate so much. And uh, I guess, how do you support or protect your children? If you're the parent who's not a narcissist, how do you support and protect your children through narcissism? Well, you know what? Like if I had the answer to that, I would be a billionaire. <laughs> I'm serious. That's what all parents want to know, right? Yeah. That's what we all want to know. How can we protect our children from narcissistic abuse? I mean, it's just, it's terrifying it's terrifying, it's horrendous, it's it's tragic, it's so, it's awful. And all we can do, the only thing we can do is just love our kids because mm. there's, there's nothing else. We cannot control the narcissist's behavior. And I think like... Should if, they? Should a parent do that? Should a parent try and protect them by limiting contact? Do you think that's something that they... or do you think that they should have the experience of the parent make up their mind for themselves and then you on the other side uh providing them context and love and support and safety and therapy if possible it's it's a case-by-case thing like there's there's so many different ways that um you know I just want to come back to this thing about calling somebody a narcissist I think you know like in the case the case in point of like your mom having BPD it, it's like all it is like all narcissism is is someone who is um someone who's who's who lives in shame so i i don't know whether we should say a narcissist maybe we should say somebody uh like living with shame how to avoid living with shame um and so somebody who lives in that place of shame in the in the city of shame i call it someone who lives there they have ever but everybody who lives in that place, the city of shame has different ways of relating and different ways, like they're still a person, they've still got their own temperament personality. And so how a narcissist might hurt a child is there's like, a, there's like a hundred ways you can hurt a child and, and a narcissist, um, and that's all narcissists will have different ways of hurting a child. And therefore, you know, we can't say that we should um, stop a child from seeing the parent who's a narcissist because, um, it's a more of a, a better question is what is the behavior that the narcissist or the person who lives in the city of shame, what behaviors are they demonstrating towards the child that could hurt the child? And what could we potentially do to ameliorate or prevent that harm rather than preventing contact? Because for two reasons, one, we know that um, a child not being able to have a relationship with their parent is in the, you know, like can often be detrimental unless it's like in severe extreme cases where the child might be might be being um, abused or neglected, obviously, um, in which case that is never, ever okay. And it's always better to not, for the child not to see the parent if they're going to be abused or neglected. A lot of people I talk to who have children with narcissists, with people who are living in shame, 
seem to take one of two approaches in terms of they either they they don't want to speak badly about the other parent to the child so they avoid having those kinds of conversations um or the other side of that is that they will say you know your dad's or your mum is a narcissist they're this they're that what do you think are some of the conversations we can have with our children that is healthy and helpful for the children to understand what's going on or what they're experiencing yeah great question and that that's a perfect example about what I was talking about before with the mirroring you know like and that's narcissistic that's completely shame-based behavior to either not talk about the other parent because you know he's still their dad or she's still their mum, so we shouldn't say anything which is minimizing and invalidating the child's experience mm. and that's completely self-absorbed entitled behavior to invalidate the child's experience because we don't want to be seen as talking badly about the other parent you know because we're so good and the other extreme is um is is uh performing parental alienation ourselves and um condemning the other parent in front of the child neither of these polarities are in any way, shape, or form helpful for that for that child's well-being. It is abusive to not say anything, or and it's abusive to say nasty things about the other parent because it doesn't help the child make sense of their world. It doesn't help the child make sense of their their emotional and their spiritual experience of growing up in relationship with other people who are their primary attachment figures. Mm. So what I would say is, and what I do say is stay with the child's experience so when a child says something really explore that with them say what's and what's that like for you when when daddy does that or when mummy says that what happens for you where do you feel it in your body what do you feel like saying to mummy when she says something like that what do you what do you feel your body needs what do you feel like you need when mummy says or does that you know so like you start resourcing them to be able to um, have some agency in the relationship with the narcissistic parent rather than pretending like it's not there or abusing the narcissistic parent from the child because all that does is tells the child that that child has no potency no agency to create or shift things in their world and that creates hopelessness and depression in the child swinging we don't want to swing we want to stay still i think like as long as you're staying with the child's experience and, and helping the child make sense of their experience in, in these relationships, then you're on the right track. But the, and I think it's, I think it, it, it probably nails it, the, what we talked about just before about not swinging, like not bashing the narcissist mm. and, um, but also not minimizing the trauma mm. and like, you know, because I uh, I know somebody who whose um, ex partner who's narcissistic who is extraordinarily abusive. Um, but there's this like there's this uh, mainstream um, narrative out there about like um, it's just incredible like how it goes. Oh, but they're still the child's parent, mm. and I don't want to. And it's interesting because it's like I don't want to stop my child seeing the other child's parent because they're still their parent it like what we know unequivocally is that abuse is abuse neglect is neglect trauma is trauma it doesn't matter if they are the sperm donor for your child if they're not good for that child it's a problem like don't don't be a saint 
do not try and be a saint and 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 do like the the good thing and, and go around saying well you know like the child it's like it's still his dad like or, overprotecting the parent as well yeah, yeah because yeah yeah it's an interesting experience because we I mean I'm not a perfect parent by any means but I do really I think no god <laughs> I mean sometimes no. <laughs> sometimes I am no. but I think I think uh, when I think about my how I am with my son is I think a lot about what I needed as a child uh, when I was younger and I needed I needed to understand because I, I felt like I made up all these stories to make sense of the world, make sense of what was happening, make sense of how my parents were treating me. And I just wish someone had explained things to me. I wish someone had talked to me. I wish someone had given me uh, an honest, a platform for honest conversation, regardless of whether I was a child. I think it's like, I think I felt like grownups were like, that's grown up business and you're too young to understand what's going on. And I kind of take the opposite approach with my son where we talk about everything and anything, nothing's off the table, really. Um, I think this overprotectiveness as well of either the parent or even the child is really unhelpful when the child would just make up stories about what's going on in their own mind, whether it's, you know, dad hates me, mum hates me. And I think that conversation piece is really important between parent and child or even therapist and child or just anywhere where the child can explore, I suppose, what they're feeling. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad that you've raised this because it's, it's so, it's so prevalent and I've done it myself, like, and you're right, you're totally right. And I love how you parent and that's how we should parent. Like we should think about like, what did we need as children? And so many times I hear like, um, people didn't get, uh, they didn't get the world explained to them and, and they, they couldn't make sense because we, as kids, we don't, we don't understand. Mm. And it's job. It's the job of the parent to provide framing and provide context and and help the child make sense of their world. And like oftentimes, when we don't, the child then makes up stories about um, about why the world is as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like my uh, my husband's uh, ex partner wouldn't let the child see his father for about eight or nine months. So went from seeing his father for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden, for nine months, he didn't see his dad. And the child did not know why, because the child didn't get a story about why that was. So the child experienced the father is literally like falling out the bottom of the planet. And then when we had the conversation with the child about like, like why there's been no contact for eight or nine months, the child had developed this incredibly fantastical story about why he hadn't seen his dad for nine months and the story went like this I haven't seen you you haven't come to see me dad because I did something wrong and you don't want me and I'm unlovable so when we don't provide a story and a narrative we don't talk like you talk to your son about his experience of the world and relationships the only thing that happens is kids make up their own story and it's never, ever good. It's always bad. It always ends up, I'm unlovable. I'm not worthy. I'm not wanted. I'm not safe. They fill in the gaps. 
you in this context then so say you feel like your safety is threatened whether it's emotional physical or spiritual and you feel that it's best for the child to have a break from the other parent Mm -hmm. what might that conversation look like with the child would it be something along the lines of you know mummy or daddy think it's best that we just have a period away like what would the conversation look like that you might have with the child so they're not thinking I'm unlovable yeah when the reality is is I'm trying to protect you what might yeah yeah that's a tough one um again it's a case-by-case basis yeah but um like wherever possible you want to put the child into a position of having agency so that giving them as much control over that experience as possible um so for example like if it's absolutely essential that the child does not see that parent because the risk is too high which is pretty unusual but if it's super essential then um you know it could be saying it could be like um acetating from the child what do they need for um this transition to make to feel comfortable for them like do they need to like write that parent a poem or or make that the make the parent a video recording about how this experience is for them you know like it's it's about how do we transition transition the child from uh context a to context b Mm. in a way that the child feels like they've got power like it's Mm. always about giving the child's mana back it's so important that children have mana Mm. always restore it's mana first I've never really looked at it from a space of empowering the child through decisions because I think sometimes as parents, and it's not misplaced, you know, the intentions are really good is that you want to protect your children and you want to give the best for your children. But at the same time, you're kind of just like making up what you think is best for them, right? You're you're telling them what's best for them based on your experience of the world, based on your worldview. And I felt like, I mean, I certainly know from my point of view, from my experience that my parents made decisions that they thought were probably pretty good and actually turned out to be pretty shit. Um, And so I love that whole, even just talking to the child, I think, and being like, you know, this is what I'm thinking of doing. How are you feeling about it? What do you, what would you like to do? Do you think that this is a good idea? Would you still like to see mum and dad? Uh, And I think it's um, important and you can correct me if if I'm wrong or, or uh, a little off track here, but it's really important to separate your relationship with the parent from their relationship with your child. Um, because I think it's easy to see the same. I think it's easy to see the two relationships as the same thing because you're dealing with one person. It's really hard. Like people find it really hard um, to not have an opinion about their ex-partner's behavior or parenting um, in scenarios whereby there's going to be a transition as you've just said really elegantly it's super important to give the child as much agency in that transition as possible so if they're not going to be seeing the other parent for whatever reason and they like they have been seeing the other parent and then it's going to stop the child needs to feel like it was I know it sounds crazy but the child actually needs to feel like it's the child's decision mm. on, on in some in some way the child needs to fully step in and feel completely in control of that without feeling without feeling like they're rejecting the other parent yeah at the moment we talk about mental health as being about the I it's all about I me 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 
and nobody's talking about relational relational health or relational mental health as in people become sick people become mentally unwell because of other people and that we don't talk about that right um and there i work with so many people who are so ashamed including myself my own shame my my own journey with shame in terms of being in a relationship with a narcissist and it's so isolating and you feel so alone and so i think that's probably what i what i want to give your listeners is that that you're not alone and there are like thousands and I don't know, millions of other people who are also walking the same journey as you. And uh, it's a painful path, but you're not alone. And yeah, that's what I want to say is there are other people out there who are going through hell just as you are and you're not, you're not alone. I think um, I, I, I totally feel that. I think my own experience and my own journey with shame and mental health issues in the past was that your shame really drives you into the shadows. It drives you inside of yourself. And you do start to have this experience where you feel completely alone uh, with your experience that nobody could ever understand what you're going through, I suppose, and that there's no way out. And shame keeps you in that cycle. And I think that, I mean, storytelling has been so healing for me because it's helped me feel, all I wanted when I first started truth-telling was, for someone to not feel as alone as I did because I thought I was crazy I was like am I the only person who thinks this about motherhood or about my body or about you know my childhood about my parents like what an awful person I am how how could I be I should be more grateful and the, the shame of that really kept me silent and storytelling has really helped me to um I suppose feel connected to other people who are also going through the same thing like oh fuck I'm actually I'm, I'm normal and you're normal we're all going through varying degrees of different or same things you know um so I guess to yeah so I really feel that in my bones and I guess one last question I would love to hear from you is about relationships in general but what's one piece of advice you wish all people new or would employ to help them have better relationships there's only two things that matter one is love and the other is trust there can be no relationship without trust and without trust there can be no relationship and as hard as it is when we are around somebody who's narcissistic and they live in the city of shame, the only thing we can do is love ourselves and love them as well. Because my goodness, I wouldn't want to live where they live. Beautiful. Oh, full body shivers. Thank you so freaking much. Was You're so, so welcome. It's so good having you on. We have to get you back for some more other things. So talk about all the bloody things. <laughs> all the things. Thank you for your time, Seraph, and it was lovely. Thanks to for talk having to you. me, Renee. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that show, and we just want to say thank you again to Seraphin for bringing her beautiful wisdom and expertise 
to everybody here. And if you're looking for a relationship therapist or um, a coach, then Seraphin's your girl. You can find her on www.seraphinupton.co.nz and I will put her website in our show notes. And we really hope that you were able to take something helpful away either to help with your co-parenting relationship or even help your kids understand what's going on if you're co-parenting with a narcissist. So thank you and we will see you again next time. Thanks for being part of the co-parenting movement. We are so grateful to have you here. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review and subscribe. If you know any friends or family going through a separation with children, please pass this on so we can reach as many people as possible. Follow at Parenting Together Apart on Instagram and we'll see you next time.